everyone. Great to be here. Um, just on that same vein, I can lower this a bit. Got as tall as Johnny, apparently. Um, we've got a trip. We're heading to Live Village um, over the summer, the 7th to 15th of July. And uh, there's nine of us now, maybe 11, depending on somebody that came and spoke to us this morning. But if you would like to be a part of that trip, it needs to be sorted out this week because we've got a few things to do, like book an airplane ticket and uh, get a visa if you need one for South Africa. But if you would like to be a part of that, we, uh, we're going to be similar kind of thing. It's going to be days of working. We're actually building and cleaning and fixing jungle gyms. And so, uh, if you don't, does everyone know what jungle gyms are? That's not a South African term, eh? That's like a worldwide term, eh? Good. So, uh, if you can do this, can you do this? Then you can stand. Okay, so you can come along and be a part of a trip like that if you wanted to, like this, yeah? So, we're going to do some, what's that, uh, karate kid stuff. Um, and uh, we've, there's a holiday club running over the time as well with the orphans. And so, one of the great things about this trip is um, people are coming even with small kids. In fact, there are no small kids coming now, hey? And they're all teens that are going to be coming with us. There was a family coming with small kids that would have been able to be part of the holiday club and that as well. So if that is something that you uh, you feel um, it might be for you, then on the information table outside there, there are some apostolic forms there. Um, and it's a great way to uh, get out to uh, see what God is doing. Wonderful. Let's, uh, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you open them with me? I'm going to be preaching tonight on the Father's Voice. Don't you love that photograph? I love that photograph. And um, I want to read two scriptures, one from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, and one from Ephesians 3, verse 14. And I'm speaking tonight on the Father's voice. I'm actually doing um, two weeks on the Father's voice. And um, I honestly didn't know that it was Father's Day next weekend. Um, I'm mentioning that now just in case your wives have forgotten and your children have forgotten about gifts for the men of your life. Um, but uh, I genuinely didn't know. Something popped out of, on my um, iPad this morning. To, it was like an advert for, I don't know, something about Father's Day. And I realized, actually, I prepared this two-part series right over the time of Father's Day. And I think there's something prophetic in it. I think there is something God wants to do through these next two weeks. And so if you're okay, open your hearts up and get ready for God to, to do a work inside of you. So 2 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says this. God speaking, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And in Ephesians 3 verse 14, Paul writing, and he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I was uh, flying into Bulawayo a few weeks ago, maybe three or four weeks ago now, and uh, it's a town in uh, Zimbabwe where I was going to minister. And as I was coming in, I felt like God dropped something. Um, you know that you've got a name tag on your forehead. <laughs> it is unbelievable. And uh, he dropped something in my heart. And uh, it was that I needed to write a letter to each of my children. Um, I haven't told Hannah about this yet. But you'll be getting this glorious letter one day, Hannah. And um, in the letter, I'm going to write about what I consider to be a, a, a genuine crossroads conversation that we had that I had with them. And it was something like like a, like a crisis in their life when we sat down and we had a, a, a conversation that I think related to who they were and how God has made them, that if they have in their hands, if they deal with this thing, it can help set them on a path of following God's will for their lives. And that time to time, 
as they come to crossroads again in their lives, they'll be able to go back to this letter and go, I remember what my dad said about this. I remember what my dad said about this. And I was, it was um, struck me again about the importance of the role of the father. And in fact, just um, a short while before that, I'd been um, sitting with a man on a step watching Ethan play football, and we got into a conversation. I, this, my relationship with this guy actually started in a little bit of a strange way. I would, arrived at Ethan's soccer practice, and I've given Ethan clear instructions never to play in goals because, I mean, if you're a goalie, that's fine. I, that's good for you, but it's just not soccer for me. I want my son to play out in the field where actually the skills are there, but it's fine. For you, it's absolutely fine. And so I arrived at soccer practice, and guess where Ethan was? In the goal. So I said, Ethan, what are you doing in the goal? He said, Dad, the coach made me. So, oh, you know, so I'm a little bit grumpy. I'm sitting around the goals like this, and I'm watching the kids play, and there's a little kid from a fallen bob and, uh, and Bob uh, gets tackled and loses the ball, and then he gets the ball again, and he loses the ball again. So I said, Ethan, who's that new kid there? He said, his, name, his name's Bob. I've, this is not his real name. I've covered up the, the identity of the innocent. And I said, well, tell Bob to wake up. And, uh, I mean, as God would work these things out, Bob's mom was standing right next to me when I said <laughs> And um, she was not a wilting wallflower. She came out in the defense of her son. Oh, boy, did she come out. It was like... I was trying to hold her eyes being scratched out, and she was calling me competitive and aggressive and all these sorts of things as she was nearly tearing me to pieces. And um, then this other random guy steps in and starts at me as well, and it turns out it's Bob's dad. And so things are not going well. Anyway, as the weeks went on, we became really good friends. And uh, as, as these things happened, I managed to get both of my feet out of my mouth, and we continued in the relationship. And I'm sitting with Bob's dad that this evening, a few weeks back, watching Bob and Ethan play football, and he says to me, you know, my son doesn't have that killer instinct, and I want to say, I know, I mean, that's the point of my whole conversation the previous time, but he says, but he says to me, he says, but my dad, my dad has got, he's a killer, he says, whatever sport he plays, if he plays golf, he's like, like a true handicap, he plays tennis, he's like, he's amongst the best, and he says, and he says, you know, I've, I've, I've never been good enough for my dad. He says, my, my son and I, Bob and I, were playing tennis with my father, his grandfather. And my son hits a shot over the net, and I thought it was a good shot. And I encourage him, hey, Bob, what a great shot. And my dad shouts over the net, don't, don't treat him like that. It was a rubbish shot. It was just got lucky. And he said, I'm, I'm nearly 50 years old, and I'm still trying to earn my dad's approval. And I was struck by the important role that dads genuinely play in the lives of their sons and daughters. And the thing is, all of us have the dads. Every single one. Not all of us are necessarily going to be dads. For some of you are women, and I'm going to break the news to you now, and you're going to be the mother. But, uh, but all of us have had dads, and all of us are in this relationship this way. And there's something that God wants to do, I believe, in restoring our relationship to our fathers, or healing it, or just investing afresh into it. And there's something that God wants to speak to us as fathers and to you as mothers in terms of how we raise our sons and our daughters. I'm going to do something very dangerous tonight as well. I'm going to talk in a short while about women's brains and men's brains, not Mark Gungle's version of it. I'm talking about IQ and things like that. Don't throw stuff at me. Wait till I actually speak about it, okay? But I think there's been this incredible um, and helpful and wonderful restoration or emphasis on what we've been singing about tonight, about God as Father. Uh, many of us, either our parents and even us, grew up in churches where God was just God. 
He was the Lord God Almighty. There was reverence. There was honor. There was, but the problem when you emphasize that aspect of God alone for too long or too much is that the God that we come to know in that situation is distant and disinterested in us. And the outcome actually is that us or our children that we bring into churches like that become distant and disinterested in God as well. And the truth is that the scripture is so clear as I read those two texts to you that God is the Father. It, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said to us that we just start off by saying, Our Father. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling through this incredible ordeal that he was about to go to, who does he, who does he go to to strength? He goes to his Father. And he prays in Mark um, 14, verse 36, Abba, Father. And he says, and he begins to ask him if he won't take this cup of suffering from him. And if he won't, uh, and if he can't, then let your will be done. And Paul and Peter and John and the other men that wrote um, the books of the New Testament, the letters to the New Church, to the New Testament churches, spoke often of God as Father. Using that phrase again, Abba, Father. Romans 8:15, Paul writes, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then in Galatians 4, verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And some of this journey of revelation, I suppose you could call it, of understanding God as Father, has been captured in some of the songs that we sing. One of them that's really popular, we've sung a number of, number of times, is uh, this one here, where it says, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased, and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good Father. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are. And the truth is that our dads, those men that raised us, can impact our view of God the Father. Is that right? So if our dads are harsh or our dads are overly, um, they don't really care what we do and how we live, if they distant or they abandon us or they crit critical of us or they flatter us, we can have a picture of God that is distorted as well. And if we have a distorted picture of God, then we too then can pass on the wrong kind of fathering to our sons and our daughters as well. And we can swing, pendulum swing from distant and um, uh, disinterested to a sugar daddy God that just kind of gives us everything we want. It doesn't matter how we live. When actually there's a picture of God the Father that is a God that is perfect in His love and perfect in His peace and perfect in His grace and perfect in His justice that He wants to reveal to us. And so fathers are called to raise their children in wholeness and to give them a picture of God that is consistent with the picture that we see in the Scripture. And so I'm going to touch on three things this evening. The first thing is this, is that dads are not everything. And uh, I suppose the reason why I felt like I needed to say this is twofold. One is because we hardly ever preach about moms, because, and I think probably because moms just get it right. They do the job so well. It may not be true. I, I know there's some rough and tumble moms out there as well that get things wrong, and we all get things wrong at a time. And I want to start off by saying that dads are not everything. Our children, God's plan for our children is that there would be um, mothers and fathers together of necessity with their differences raising our children. And... Uh, I love this passage from 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7 to 12. 
um, Paul writing again to the church in Thessalonica, and he says this, As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for our own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. What a great picture of motherhood, eh? Feeding and care, the, the love that I, I was, um, actually I mentioned this morning about a, um, a mom that I know that's going through a bit of a tough time financially and, and uh, apparently what she's doing is she's feeding her kids and she, she's got enough left over she, that she'll eat what's left over, but she's actually, I mean, that's the mother's heart. I mean, I know when Linda leaves and I've got to look after the kids, it's like I get there first. I feed myself. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like an aeroplane. What if I collapse? Do you know what I mean? Because like when that thing drops down, first put it on yourself and then on your children. Because if I don't eat first, I could collapse on the floor and not be able to feed my children for days. So first I eat, then I clear out the kitchen and I send my children in to look after themselves. But a mother would never do that. I see Linda drag herself in exhausted from her day and it's like, what do you want to eat to the children? And she feeds them. And I say, let them take care of themselves. Verse 11 goes on and says, You know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, urged you to live your lives in a way that God, that God would consider worthy, for he calls you to share in his kingdom and glory. And God's plan before the fall and after the fall is for a mother and a father. And in Genesis 2 it says this, it says, And a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. And that was what God spoke over Adam and Eve before they were even children, before there was even a mother and a father to leave. It was His plan from the very beginning that He put in place. And uh, the, the, the reality is that what I say over these next two weeks is going to apply to both of you as a mother and a father. But I, I feel like I especially need to speak to the fathers because the things that qualify us to fulfill our role as dads are the very things that make us most prone failing to fulfill our role as dads. I came across a real page turner the other day. It's written by a lady called Diane Halpern. Why don't you put it up there? And um, Sex Differences in Cognitive Ability. And uh, I'm telling you, you've got to get this. It's $52 on Amazon, so I didn't read the whole thing. I just got some highlights out of it. But uh, <laughs> $52 for a book, that's a lot of money. Anyway, what, uh, what, what, uh, and she's qualified. I mean, she's a brain box. Uh, she's a PhD. She was um, president, past president of the American Psychological Association and past president of the Western Psychological Association. She's got awards this long, books, this many books, been a dean of this many universities. She, she, she's got some, got some stuff behind it. And uh, she, she looked at all the research literature that was out there, and this is the, the animal research literature of sex-associated neuroanatomical and behavioral differences. In other words, she looked at the studies they did on rats to show the differences between how boy rats behave and how girl rats behave. And she, there, was, there was piles of studies, and she went into it thinking that, um, that all of the differences, in fact, let me let her speak. So in the preface to her first book, she wrote this. She says, At the time, it seemed clear to me that any between-sex differences in thinking abilities were due to socialization practices. In other words, the fact that we um, give little girls dollies and we give boys trucks 
That's why they think it's that kind of thing. Artifacts, for that you mean ancient sacred writings like the Bible or those that seem to be sacred like the Quran or um, other writings. And mistakes in research, bias and prejudice. Because after reviewing a pile of Donegal articles that stood several feet high and numerous books and book chapters that dwarfed the stack of journal articles, I changed my mind. Well, I'm not going to say that women or men are cleverer than the other. That's not the point of this. Actually, the truth is men and women have um, very similar average IQs across the board. Although, and this is where it's going to get a little bit tricky, there's that um, bell's curve on the your, my right over here is the one about our IQ. And uh, men, get ready to pass your test out of the way. You ready? Because in the genius category, there are, there are overwhelmingly more men than women in the genius category. So just stick them out a little bit, boys. Tell me about it. We've got something going for us. But then in the idiot category, or the anti-genius, as they so kindly put it in this, uh, in this passage, men overwhelmingly are more there than women as well. <laughs> so we can have bright lights and pretty dim lights as well when it comes to the IQ department. Women, by contrast, are, um, are grouped much closer together and they have much fewer constituents out there. So there obviously are women geniuses and women anti-geniuses as well. I've never heard that term before. But anyway, they're, they're in both categories. And the, But the point of this is that we're different, and, and the studies show that we're different. One of the things that's been getting a, a fair bit of airtime recently is the bell curve around the agreeableness, about a, people being agreeable or disagreeable. Now, I don't think anybody really wants to be called disagreeable, because it means you're unpleasant. It means you're unfriendly and you're bad-tempered and you don't care what other people think about you. Not in that good kind of way where you've given up on the fear of man, but in that kind of way where I don't care because I want my job to succeed or I want my money or I'm going to win that prize and I don't care. The kind of, I mean, last answer would probably fit into the disagreeable category there. And again, it almost at the end of the spectrum, almost all of the most disagreeable people are men. And almost all of the most agreeable people are women. And then she went on in her studies to see that there was some, um, uh, Jesus, I've got to get the right word here, cognitive and neuropsychiatric disorders that are measurable, that are very different in, their, in how they appear between men and women. And I'll get to a point on this in a moment. But women are twice as likely as men, twice as likely to experience clinical depression in their lifetime. They're twice as likely to experience um, post-traumatic stress disorder, whereas men are twice as, more, twice as likely to experience alcoholic or drug addiction, 40% more likely to develop schizophrenia. Boys' dyslexia rates are almost 10 times that of girls and four to five times higher um, diagnosed with autism. And there's the, the biggest contributing factor to what makes men and women's brains different, and I'm not talking about, again, because I don't think IQ is a measure of our value and our success, any of those things anyway. So I'm not even talking about that. The fact is we are different. And the biggest contributing factor, what, this is not me telling you what God's saying, this is what science is, is these fuel additives in our system. You know when you go to the petrol station, just don't, don't go ahead of me on the slide. I'll get to it now. Um, you know when you go to the petrol station and, you, uh, and they come to you, they always say to you, won't you please give me, can we put that extra fuel additive in your tank? You know, do you not get that? Every single time. I, before they even ask, I go, no, thank you. I don't, I don't want anything more. But God has done that in our petrol tank. And what he did was he, he 
go to the slide now. He pours into boys testosterone and he pours into girls estrogen. And man, I looked at some studies of what happens when um, men have too much estrogen. Not a good thing, boys. Promise you. All bad news when your estrogen is too high than that. And when a woman has too little estrogen, again, all bad news. And when a man has too low testosterone, it's all bad news. There's, this is, um, God has put these things inside of us. And it was him that did it. And I can prove it to you. Because if you look at um, uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, I love this psalm. It says this, For you, David writes, for you formed me in my inward part. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Halfway through, I don't know which point in the gestation, but the baby's growing in the mother's womb. If it's a male, it gets a, a, like a surge of testosterone into its little body. And uh, it affects the way that the brain develops. It affects the way the bodies develop. The, obviously, our, our, our um, sex organs develop. It, 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 and it will affect that boy. It will continue to affect him for the rest of his life. And uh, God is the one who knitted me together in my mother's womb. He says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And if you're a woman, and I, I hesitate to say this on the stand because it'll have me on tape, then you should say, as, as a woman, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And I say, because I'm not a woman, obviously I'm a man. But as a man, then you can say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You should be able to take your little infant boy or girl and hold them in your hand and go to your little daughter, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And to your son, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. This is the plan of God. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. For your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for you. And when as yet none was, as yet there was none of them. And this is not God's ultimate joke. He makes Men and women have to try and figure out how, what's going on in each other's lives. It is God's design. Friends, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have this um, amazing passage where Paul compares the body of Christ to the human body. And he says, I mean, if he was here, he would say, hey, Matt, you may not be the preacher, but you're just as important as the preacher. Or he might say to you, um, Nazir, you're the keeper of the door, and some people might not think that's an important job, but I'm telling you that's an important job because you are the, I don't know what the doorkeeper would be in, in the foyer. Maybe you're the liver, maybe, I don't know. Or the colon. Maybe you're the colon, I don't know, whatever it is. But it's a really important, and Paul goes on and he says this, he says those parts, some parts, he doesn't say they're not more important than others, he says some parts are less presentable than others. Some parts have more visibility, some have more honor, but all of them are important. Everything in the body is important because it's a, it's a conversation about design. This is how God designed it. We can't decide, you know what, I don't really like the way God made this thing. I'm going to pull something out. When we, when we operate as a body, we glorify God. When our bodies function the way they're supposed to, we bring glory to God. When, when, and they probably will do this if they haven't already done this. I'm guessing somewhere, somewhere, uh, somebody has done this. They could take a uterus and put it inside a man so that he could have a baby and become pregnant. It's, it would bring no glory to God because it's not the design that God put in place. And it's the same thing with us as men and women. God is glorified when we operate according to the way that he's designed us. Now, I'm not, I'm, this is not limiting people to jobs or anything like that. I'm talking about who we are as people, that we get to express ourselves in. in a, men cannot be feminine. It's the wrong thing to say, well, that man's 
femininity. Because femininity speaks of something that is strong and whole in the way that God has made someone to be. It's not a deficiency in somebody else. So a man can be a wuss, he can be inadequate, but he cannot be feminine. And when he, if you were to call um, a man masculine, again, it's not that he's, he's being something special. He's being exactly what God has designed him or her to be. And the Bible talks about the fact that we were made in his image. Both of us, men and women, it says male and female, uh, we made them in our image. And so we are created in the image of God. And um, there's no contradiction that because God is glorified when we function the way that we are. And the reason why I go through all of this is this, is that men, your wives can play and do play a profoundly important role as mothers in the home, but they cannot play the role that God has ordained for you to play in the home. And it's, and even in our role as fathers, or we, the way that we raise our sons is not exactly the same as the way that we raise our daughters. Obviously, there's much that would be common to both, but there are certain things, and this is part of what I'm going to talk about next week in terms of how we speak into the lives of our sons and daughters, that is going to be unique because she is a she and because he is a he. Number one, dads are not everything. Number two, dads are not perfect. Steve Fiddle is a, you know, I had that conversation with Bob's dad on the stairs there. I said to him, I've just been reading this book by an Australian um, psychologist by the name of Steve Fiddle, and he's written a bestseller called The New Manhood. He's not a Christian as far as I know. I think he believes in Christian values and that kind of stuff. And um, he has had um, an incredible impact around the world, actually, through this book and through his seminars. And uh, the second chapter of his book is called You and Your Father. And uh, he talks in there, in this, if he writes the second chapter, about gathering in a, in a, in a room like this with 100 men gathered there on a seminar on, on fathers. And he says there's a certain kind of electricity in a room like that and nervous energy as they kind of gather together. And he goes on, and about midway through the morning, he asks a question that is going to be central to what happens for the rest of their time together. And he says this. He says, you are here because you want to be a good father, but how about your own experience of being fathered? How will you get along with your own dad? And he says this kind of uneasy silence fills the room when he asks this. And some people are actually a little bit irritated. You can see that he didn't ask the question because you can see the, the scowls on their faces and the frowns. But he then takes it one step further. He says, look, I'm going to ask you to put your hands up and say what category you fall into. And I, I want to say this could be true if this room is full of men or full of women as well. And uh, what category do you fall into in terms of your relationship with your father? And he says when he asks the first part of it, about 30 hands go out of the 100 and these are the guys that are in the, the worst situation of, of all. They, they barely speak to their dads anymore. They, something has happened and there's been a fallout and they've been estranged from their dads and, they, and they, essentially there's no contact between them. The second group of guys are a little bit better. They, uh, they get along, but there's something still wrong. They go to the family gatherings and there's a pushiness. There's like a, you know when those arguments are always just sitting beneath the surface and they just can't connect and find each other and they, they kind of leave those family gatherings and birthdays and they, they, the guy, the son feels like he's been cut with a thousand cuts and his wife's so exasperated they drive off because she can't get him to connect with, with his own dad. And then there's the, the third, also about 30, and the, there's a third group about 30 as well, he says, that are the world behaves men. They're the one that make the regular visits to, to 
often family gatherings or still time at home. They go monthly or they phone all the time. But uh, the reason why the contact is in place is not because of a yearning for relationship or because of a warmth that's there, but because of weakness. You see, Philip goes on and he says, he says this in the book. He says, you'll be getting the picture now, and it's not very good. So far, we have 90% of the men in full relationships with their fathers. That's a shocking situation. Yet one we have somehow come to accept as normal. If you are at war with your father, in your head, you can be at war with masculinity itself. And I want to say femininity itself as well for the ladies. There is one more smaller group of men. They wait calmly until the other men have finished speaking. But I can pick them out clearly from the front of the room. Their eyes and faces are alike. They finally speak up clearly and gently. These men have wonderful fathers, better than fish. These are fathers who act as an emotional backstop in their adult son's life, men who they admire, enjoy, and feel deep support from, who will remain close to them until the day they die. This small group of men are living their lives blessed with the knowledge in every cell of their body that they are loved by and a source of pride to the Father. These men, at most, are 10% of the men in the luckiest men. What a terrible score it is. Some of the men who are challenged by this. How different would the world be if we all, men and women, had different scores? The scripture points to this because it, it points to the fact that we are not perfect as men. And we are, we are prone to falling and making the kind of mistakes that uh, lead to these kinds of scenarios. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is teaching about um, receiving the Holy Spirit, he says, if your father asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him a... father asks you for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake, and so on. And he goes on to say this in Matthew 7, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? But the part I want to focus is, you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts. Many of our dads, um, may not have known the Lord when they were when they were bringing us up. They they had they hadn't had the opportunity to be um, restored even as we have walked. And maybe some of them did, and they still weren't great fathers. That's not a, not a good thing. But we are a fallen and a people in a broken world, and these kind of things happen. He goes in Hebrews chapter twelve. The writer says this: For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us. In other words, there's sometimes when we as dads discipline in a way that is not best for our kids. There's sometimes we are raised in a way where what they thought was best turns out it wasn't best. They made mistakes that they were raising us. And that's not meant to write us off. I'm out from my own daughter sitting here. She knows I never, ever make any mistakes in my disciplining. That's the baby's good. And um, we're prone to it. It's not meant to write us off as dads or even as moms who from from time to time fail. I don't think any person, any young man, ever grows up thinking to himself or, or goes on in his life thinking, you know what, I'm going to be a bad dad. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a rubbish dad. I think even if he's had the worst dad in the world, at some point he kind of goes, you know what, I'm never going to be a dad like my dad was. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best as a dad. The problem is that what is sown into us isn't so easily discarded and put off. At times, so often, we end up repeating the mistakes our fathers made. It's a moment, you know, when you're doing something, you go, oh, my dad, or 
on my mom if you're a lady. And we either repeat the mistakes or we swing our pendulum to the other side and we go to the other extreme. And instead of being distant and disinterested and, uh, and harsh, we end up on the other side where we're like this helicopter parent who hover over every moment of our children and they can never do anything wrong and we, we never have any challenge in their lives. And between those two, there's this, this picture of God the Father, the perfect Father. And, uh, and, this, and God has given us His Spirit, what I referred to earlier as the Spirit of Sonship, so that we can actually be those kind of dads. In Romans 4, as I read that scripture earlier, calls Him the Spirit of Adoption as sons. And He goes on to say this, that we, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's not, as I've said before, that kind of formal dad thing where you walk into your dad's study and you go, Excuse me, Father, I was wondering if I should borrow the keys to this car. You know what I mean? It's like, that isn't that. That's open the door to the study because it's your dad's study and you don't need a knock because it's your dad. And you open it and go, hey, dad. And, and you run around the desk and you grab and you give him a hug and your dad grabs you and he wrestles a bit with you and gives you a kiss. And you go, dad, 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 like this. It's that kind of explanation. And Paul's saying because the spirit of sonship has come into us, we can say it without reservation, without hindrance, without fear, without a slave mentality that I've, I've got to keep my distance from you. And the reason is because there's an inner witness inside of us. It says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children, the tekron of God. The word literally means the sons and the daughters, the children of God. He bears, spirit, bears witness. And I think that's one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit in our life is to bear witness to this relationship with God. And that word witness in the Greek is a word that comes from um, that, the martyr word that we use for witness. In Acts 1.8, it says we will be witnesses. And it comes from that word, but with, combined with another Greek word that means to join together. And together, it has this definition, to testify jointly, corroborate by. And this is what happens, friends. The Holy Spirit comes to bear witness, not in our spirit, but with our spirit. He comes to bear witness with our spirit. And what's intended to happen is that the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us about the fact that we are the children of God, which is just the truth. That's the truth that he's speaking, and he wants us to come into agreement with that. See, friends, if you are the child of God, if you are born again, you are his child. But many of us, even though we're born again, can live like orphans because we haven't come into agreement with the spirit that bears witness with us. Instead, we bear witness with the abuse that we've suffered or the rejection we've suffered or the hurt that we've been through or, or, the, or the abandonment or whatever it is that our, our fathers have done as they tried their best but were never the perfect father. And there's a million reasons for all of us to feel that kind of pain. The Spirit of God comes to bear witness, not with our emotions, not with our memories, our thoughts, but with our spirit. And so that we are no longer obligated to that past. We are now can agree with um, God that we are His children. And it tells again and again in Scripture that everything is confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so it's done. If you will agree as the Spirit of God speaks that into your life, then you are able to cry without, as I said just now, a reservation of fear, Father, Father, and He comes through you. Lastly, we can and we must be the fathers Testament, I, I did a, a kind of a quick 
look through the Old Testament at one point trying to find out who's an example of a great father in the Old Testament. You've got to look at David. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart. He must be a, a cracker dad. He was an absolute dad, disaster dad. He had uh, one of his sons rape his daughter, and the other son kills that son, and then that son rebels against the dad, and it's like, what a disaster. Then you go look on one after the other, these great men of God. Where's the father story? Where do we find the example? And as I was reading through and resting through this, you find this person in Scripture. Abraham almost gets there, but he's got some dodgy stuff going on as well. The one who gets it right is God. And he's not the father in a kind of formal way, in a, in a distant way. He's a father in the way that is like the most engaged father we could hope to ever see today. He's the father in the scriptures that changes nationals. He's the father in the scriptures that feeds the children. He's the father that helps them as they grow to become from, from little children to young men and young daughters. Listen to this from Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm checking my glasses went on yet. Chapter 16, verses 5 to 7. He says, if no one had the slightest interest in you, no one pitied you or cared for you, on the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field and left to die. I came by and I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. I don't know if you've ever seen the birth of your children. I've got to see one out of three. I had some other appointments on at the time when things were going on. We're still trying to work our way through that. Okay, don't bring it up. But I did get to see Hannah. Uh, being born, and she was born by Caesar, and I was there, she came out of the womb. My golly, you have not seen anything as scary looking as a baby coming straight out of the womb. The blood and the white stuff, and just kicking and playing, and like, I'll show you a photograph one of these days. And uh, and it's that kind of picture, this baby's just been born with all the, the birth fruit, it's abandoned on the ground, and, and most men would like, they're kind of like, yeah, wash it first, don't make me touch it like that. But God the Father doesn't do that. God the Father comes in, and he goes on and says this. He says, I came by and I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there, I said, live. And I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew up and became a beautiful tree. Your breast became full, and your body hair grew. I don't really know what that's all about. But you were still naked. I'll speak a little bit later about <laughs> scary woman. Come on. Um, I don't get distracted. I'll stay focused, people. I'll speak about that next week when I talk about how fathers relate to their daughters. And um, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 34, it says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him, taking them by the arms. And again, there's this picture of God the Father taking his toddler by the hand and just actually teaching them one step at a time how to do it. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He says, they did not realize it. It was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck, and I bent down to feed them. God the Father bends down to a child like this and feeds them with love. One of the ways that you can see people who genuinely value children is they, they look them in the eyes. They don't look down on them like this when they talk to them. You'll, you'll see there's, everyone's going to do this now because I'm kind of getting there. See, when they talk to the little ones, they'll kind of go down to their level and they'll talk to them like this. They, you see, they, they, they're not looking up. And God the Father comes down like this. And you see, it feels at times like, how can we, with all our frailties and weaknesses and, and, and uh, propensity 
to fall into selfishness and sin be those fathers so we don't repeat the cycles and mistakes that we've made in the past. Friends, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And He guides us and leads us. And 1 Corinthians 2, it talks about the fact that we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit actually revealing what the Father is thinking. And so when we find ourselves in a place of inadequacy and inability to father our children, when we, when we face trials and tests, we have to actually go seek the Father through the Spirit and say, God, I need you to help me to be the Father you are to our children at this time. It comes on job training as we move forward. Sorry, man, come up. Father's Day next Sunday. And one of the things Steve Goodall says is that um, he, he goes on in this chapter to talk about why it's important for us to try and repair a broken relationship with our own father. And I don't know what your relationship with your dad is like. Maybe some of you are in that tenth percent where it's absolutely just amazing. Maybe you're in the place that Hannah's in. And, uh, <laughs> excuse me, thank you. Maybe your dad made some mistakes. You know, uh, why don't you understand? I've often wished that one day my, when I pass away and the thousands of people are gathered at my funeral and uh, my children are standing there holding onto the quilt to barely be able to keep themselves up from the trauma of having lost me. That one day they would, they would stand as they stood there and say, you know what, I never heard my dad raise his voice. I never saw him get angry and say a harsh word to my mom. And uh, I never saw him lose his cool. My children are never going to be able to say that kind of thing. They aren't. And I, and I, I mean, I genuinely, when I hear people say that about their dads, I genuinely wish I could have been that kind of dad. And I'm not. And I, I want to say there's, there's times when our dads have raised us in ways that, that have left of us that hasn't been because they didn't want to be a better dad. You know, they, for many of them, as I said earlier, they didn't know the Lord and they, they were doing the best they understood as they were led by uh, the sin that was in their lives as well. But friends, if it is possible this week for you to spend some time with the Lord, and I will pray for that in a moment, and ask Him to do a work of healing in your relationship with your dad so that you can get on the phone write a letter, maybe over the summertime as you go and spend uh, some time back home, wherever it is, to be able to sit down in a quiet moment with your dad and, and have a conversation with him and, and heal and restore what's there. I believe God wants that. Steve Biddle finishes that chapter of the book and he says this, not even a believer, is forgiving your father, not just by an effort of will, but by actually understanding his life will be one of the most freeing things you ever do. Friends, I don't know, maybe some of you, your dad's passed already, and it's too late for you to be able to go and have this conversation. But it's not too late to have a conversation with the Heavenly Father and to invite him to come and give you a fresh insight into your father and into the relationship that you have with him and ask him to come in and heal and restore. Because until until we allow that healing to take place, it's like a hindrance in us being the fathers that He wants us to be, in us being the mothers that He wants us to be, and the brothers and the sisters, and, uh, and even the sons and 
man and every woman created by your design exactly the way that you want us to be, Lord. Thank you for our differences. Thank you for the many ways we're the same, but thank you also for our differences. Thank you that we there's a rich tapestry of a man and woman that, that, that worships before your throne. Thank you, Lord, for our imperfect dads, pops, babas, that did their very best, Lord God, and actually did a great job. And Father, we want to even pray for those that messed up completely. And even for those that showed abuse. Father, we want to pray that you would come tonight and you would heal your sons and your daughters. We want to pray, Heavenly Father, that where it is possible for restoration enable forgiveness to take place in our hearts. And Lord, when all else is said and done, we thank you that we are your sons and your daughters. We are no longer obligated to our past, not our pain or our hurt or our rejection or our banishment. We cast that off.